Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Katherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as always, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited for you to join us today for our discussion over 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. going to slowly work our way through all of the nightmare films. It's obviously going to take us a little bit of time to get there because we're going to alternate it with uh, other episodes on other films. But what better franchise uh, to to work our way through the nightmare? Yeah, I am a lot happier to be working my way through A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, than I am to be working my way through the Halloween franchise uh, <laughs> that you're forcing me to uh-huh. do as well. This one brings me a lot more joy than the Halloween franchise. That That's for sure. As much as I like the Halloween franchise, this one brings me more joy as well, in part because it has a similar sort of affect to, to what we talked about with Evil Dead, where each film, yes, it's it's part of this larger story, but it really is its own sort of journey experience because it's its own weird tone and mood and and in a way that like the Halloween or even the, the Friday the 13th ones are not going to be, right? Because they're a little bit more consistent in tone and mood, if nothing else. Yeah, and I don't think any other film really kind of like articulates that this conflicting view of Freddy, uh, conflicting view of what is at the heart of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. It, all of the, there's so many conflicting ideas, and no film better articulates that than the second one. Absolutely, uh, it's it's such a it's such a peculiar experience, right? So the whole time I was watching yeah. it, I couldn't figure out if I really liked the film or actually really disliked it. If it was a rather delightfully good film or just the worst. Thing ever if it perfectly embodied the essence of nightmare or if it was a complete deviation like I could never decide on any of those fronts because this is just such a, a complicated hot mess uh, in the best and worst ways possible yeah I, I could not agree more with you I remember like like the original nightmare like I mentioned um, when on the other podcast episode I have I grew up with Nightmare on Elm Street, so I've seen this before. But rewatching this one was a very different experience than rewatching the first Nightmare. This one is just—it's a lot more bizarre, a lot. It's a lot more of a confusing viewing experience, particularly viewing it as a modern audience, because there is a lot of—I mean, this is not a hot take to say this is a gay film. Right. Um, there's a whole documentary about that. Right, um, it's it's but, called the gayest horror film ever yeah, by a lot of people, right? So not a yeah. Hot so take. I mean, like this is not a this is not original, but it is interesting to watch this 1985's kind of like subtext of gayness, and then seeing what that like seeing how it plays out. It's very it's a very interesting experience because I kept, every scene I was kind of switching back and forth between. I'm like, is this incredibly uh, transgressive and, and progressive and the horror film that was needed at the time, 
or is this just homophobic? Right. And and the whole time my answer to that question was yes, right? Like, yes, it's both of these things often at the same moment, right? And in the same scene. I think, too, the, the other question that I found myself just kind of saying like yes to was, does this film perfectly exemplify the, the spirit of the Freddy franchise? Um, or Or is this a weird very distinctly different film from the first one um because you know 1985 right where this film comes out right after it i mean they like hopped on that that cash cow as fast as they could i i think i understand why wes craven would not want to come back for this film because it is a very different depiction of both the dream world and freddy and it's very very different uh what the creators kind of focused on as being the most scary, frightening part of Freddy. The source of horror from Nightmare on Elm Street, the original to part two, is drastically different. Yes. Yes. And and I think you can feel that unsettling, right, in in the fact that, you know, they they originally weren't even going to have um, Robert England be in it, right? And then... I know. (laughs) It's but that's crazy. Yeah, I can't even imagine, right? I just honestly can't imagine. And I think honestly, the the film wouldn't have even had the the sort of gay critical success that it has had if if we didn't have England as as Freddie. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, hearing England talk about his experience working on this film, he's one of the the few actors, along with obviously Mark Patton, who talked about how he knew at the time that there was lots of gay subtext in the film and how he explicitly made choices as an actor to play up the gay elements. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think if Robert England was not a part of this film, it would not be as gay. And also it would just straight up not be as good. Because, I mean, again, Robert England's back, thank God, and he's amazing in this film. Again. I got to meet him at a at a con um, here in San Antonio a few years ago, uh, and he was hands down the nicest human being I think I've ever met. I also met him at a comic book convention. Wasn't he so nice? Wasn't he like the most delightful down-to-earth person ever? He's a total sweetheart. He's like exactly what... He's exactly who you want him to be. 100%. Yeah, we mentioned that we had lived in Kentucky before, and he was like, oh... I love Kentucky, my wife and I. And then, like, he had this little story about him and his wife, and I was like, please let us be friends. Uh, and and I think that that, you know, like, just makes for me the, the whole experience uh, when I watch these films that much sweeter, right? To know that that this, that England is, um, we've talked about this before with, with Evil Dead, right? That, like, um, you know, we've talked about how that series needed Bruce Campbell because Bruce Campbell is Ash, Ash is Bruce Campbell. And I would argue that, you know, um, you can't really have a, a Freddy that's not Robert England. And I, I mean, the creative team of this film luckily realized that too, because they shot a, they shot parts of it without England, and it just was not the same. I mean, England is a serious, classically trained actor, and he and classically trained in both, like obviously the acting sensibility, but also classically trained in terms of like his physicality. He's focused primarily on that aspect of acting training and i mean you watch these movies and it shows like you're not you can't this is not just some guy putting on claws and like prancing about this is a serious actor embodying this night nightmare character yes and in a film that is gonna be about 
the role that physicality plays and how we read um, certain people as queer or not, uh, you have to have our monster be doing that same physicality, right? Because that's that's really key. And I, I have on my list of irrational fears, one that's on the super like what an incredibly irrational fear is the like, I'm terrified in retrospect about like how hard it must have been, particularly for gay men, um, to know if someone else was gay so that they could hook up with them back when, um, you know, you could at least more easily get arrested, right? You can still get beaten to death, but like, like, and how you'd have to like know like what, whether their earring was on the left or right or whether they had a colored uh, handkerchief in their left or right back pocket. Like there's something about that that feels so stressful to me that sometimes I just get overwhelmed about like how terrible it would have been if I had been a gay man in like the the 50s, right? Which is such an unreasonable thing to be worried about. Um, But that's really what this film is doing, right? Is it showing us like where... And how do we read that line of whether or not this is a leading man um, with a, a romantic female lead or this is a leading man with a romantic gay uh, lead, right, romance. And, and that's really, that's an interesting thing for this film to do, whether or not it's intending to do it. It's also interesting just considering the time period in which this came out, 1985. I mean, this is like, this is Reagan time. This is, I mean, it. The AIDS epidemic is around this time. Yeah. Like, and is being called GRID, right? Gay-related immune deficiency. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. This is just an interesting film to have been made and to be included as a part of the franchise. And it's incredibly divisive for that reason. I mean, there are. this is kind of the film, if you are a fan of the Nightmare uh, franchise, that... Some people single out as being their least favorite because they're like, it just feels so tonally different as we were talking about. And tonally and even like from a source of horror perspective, different. I mean, there is a lot less nightmare elements in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 than in any of the other nightmare uh, films. And so I think it makes sense that this is such a divisive film. But it's also at the same time a lot of people's favorites because of a lot of these elements that we've already been hinting at. Yeah. So I want to mention the the theory that I that we're we've been like dancing around, right? Which is, is queer theory and and the ways that that impacts how we look at this film. Um, and so I'm going to actually reference um, a gentleman whose name is Ellis Hansen. Uh, he had a 1999 book called Outtakes: Essays on Queer Theory and Film. That's a funny title. Yeah. I, it's it's one of those that you're like, ah, you definitely spent some time making it work. I I am a firm believer that all titles for essays should be puns. So I am very, very happy that this panned out. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, if you, if you can't have a punny title, then you shouldn't have a book is, is my, (laughs) there's my, (laughs) um, but so he, he talks about the, the distinction between gay and lesbian analyses of films versus queer theory. Whereas in gay and lesbian analyses, uh, there's, there primarily is this just sort of focus on gay characters, right? There are gay characters in this text, we're going to look at them, that uh, queer theory 
tries to to go a little bit beyond that by saying that it actually may not even matter if there are ostensibly gay characters um that what we're going to look at is is not just the relationships between characters but we're going to look at aesthetics and cinematic form and the complexities of desire and identification and the appreciation for political nuance uh and homoeroticism that goes well beyond whether or not there are gay characters and and genre and style and queer audiences as well. And a lot of people who um, write about Nightmare 2 really focus on the fact that it, it may not even, it really honestly doesn't matter um, in some ways whether or not the the film was intended to be a, a queer film. What matters is the multiple sites of reception in which audiences have read it that way. And yeah. that's, that's what queer theory does. And that's what I think makes this film so interesting is that we have sort of two distinct conversations that are uh, that cannot be separated from each other and that is the film as text and the film as cultural artifact that's that is a great distinction i'm really glad that you introduced this theory because i I think more than ever like a lot of a a lot of our conversations sometimes get bogged down in like creator it's creative creator's intent versus um audience reaction and i think that this implementing like this queer theory and saying like just this queer theory kind of seems to say that creator's intent doesn't matter so much as all or it only matters a little bit and there's all it's only these one up- piece of the puzzle yeah 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 it's creator's intent is sure important they did make it i suppose or whatever but there's so many other pieces that are at play rather than just like how one single i mean in this case old white guy views their own text and, and I think it's because queer theory is aware of of the intersectionality of identity in, in a way that, that goes a little beyond particularly feminist theory um, or even more limited forms of, of gay and lesbian theory um, because it's saying, you know, if, if we are composed of all of these different elements, then we have to assume that a, a film is as well. And so, yes, what the script actually does, what the uh, director did with his takes or, or her takes and wanted with um, things. That's a piece of the puzzle, but it is no less um, or no bigger than any of these other pieces. And and I think that's that's why I struggle so much with this film, right? Because like you said, is this film like super um, homophobic or is it like amazingly transgressive? And, and what we're seeing, I think, are the tensions between what the text is sometimes doing and what we see as the cultural artifact of the film. So I guess now that we've got kind of the queer theory out of the closet and out in the open, um, why not let just jump into these scenes within the film? I mean, I, I think while the purpose of this podcast is not to really examine the reception by the masses, because I mean, there it's this cl- film has clearly been, picked up and championed by the LGBTQ plus community. That is indisputable. But what we can really look at and discuss in this, in the context of this podcast is how they got there. What pieces did they pick up on? Why this film? What scenes led them to champion this film? One of the first things I think we have to think about is the character of Jesse. So we've talked before, we actually talked about it in our Black Christmas episode, episodes about what happens when we have characters who have more gender neutral names uh, and the affect on female characters, particularly on the final girl. Uh, And so we have 
been sort of taught starting with um you know black christmas kind of onward that that our slasher films are going to end with a a final girl figure who is going to sort of repurpose um often very phallic sort of things to to defeat the monster at the end um and and the character a character named jesse could have been just as easily uh, a female character based on that name alone but the film decides uh in and to very interesting uh, effects to have our, our final girl be a final boy instead. And it's incredibly interesting because a large part of like the accepted theory around final girls is that they start um, in this place of clearly being more androgynous, but being identifiable as female. And by the end of the film, they have to, I know this phrasing is weird, but they have to gain the phallus the phallus object in order to kill the monster. They gain the phallus, they gain the masculine tendency that they need to in order to succeed and win the day. And I really think that what is interesting about Jesse is that he goes through the exact same thing. He does. And and people like Carol Clover have explained that part of the reason that the final girl often ends up being very androgynous um, is because... Um, we frequently, especially in those early slasher films, the, the films were made for male audiences, right? Um, and so it was, it was how can we have a female character that the, that the male audiences will still sort of be able to identify with? Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting because we're seeing that in some ways the character of Jesse is, is still a little androgynous in terms of the name, um, in terms of some of his clothing choices, although some of that's just the 80s. <laughs> um, but but you're right. He's he's still going through like a checklist, right? Uh, the, the things that need to happen. And by the end, he gains the phallus. I mean, he does that in that dance sequence in which he puts a literal like wooden doodad in front of his crotch and is and we see him literally uh, have that phallus object right there. And then he also be- be- acquires the phallus through Freddy Krueger's claws, which had been previously set up to us in the film through an earlier scene to be an incredibly phallic and homoerotic uh paraphernalia i mean his claws are incredibly gay in this film (laughs) ah that that needs to be something his claws are incredibly like gay in this film um (laughs) i mean i should just are the tagline that you use they are they are incredibly gay right and and england even said that he wanted to go gayer right like he wanted to to even like insert it into uh mark Patton's mouth right and and that was that ended up being terminated probably for good reasons but um yeah now with that said there's a really important caveat and that is that the final girl is the final person standing and jesse isn't you know jesse dies at the end uh after he he defeats creddy i mean freddy creddy i was trying to say freddy and krueger um freddy uh and then he's a he's a crispy critter and so it's his girlfriend Right. That is technically in that it's almost like a baton passing of the baton. Right. Like that we can't this character has been embodying this this uncomfortable liminal space between final girl and a masculine character. And the film at the end is just like, OK, that was more than we can handle. So we'll just end with the traditional final girl who is a a female coded as feminine and just let that be how we end. Right. Yeah, the end certainly muddies 
a lot of the homoerotic elements that have been established. Uh, and more, maybe more specifically, the, the transgressive nature of those homoerotic that, elements. That's a, that's a great point. The, the, the truly transgressive nature and the commitment of this final boy kind of thing. Uh, because, yeah, you're, I mean, you're at, cause you're absolutely right. The end, in the end, he does still, Jesse does still kind of, I guess, end up with the girl. The, the yeah, guy there's a weird the sort of like, um, you know, the, the power of, of, of the woman, right? Which, which is not a new concept. Um, if we go back to Victorian culture, the angel of the house, right, was used to describe the role of the woman to be the moral, uh, religious, and all things other guide, right, for for the household. And and we really just kind of circle back to that, right, and, um, that we can save you if we have a woman's love. And to indulge this point a little further and indulge in perhaps a less transgressive reading of the film, a woman could save someone and turn them straight. Like, I mean, this is... He was gay for a majority of the film. Freddy Krueger is the embodiment of him indulging in his gay tendencies. But at the end of the day, you put the right woman in front of a gay person and bada bing, bada boom, they're magically cured and they're straight now. So that's a definitely a less transgressive reading. That's a, definitely a, a far more homophobic reading of the film, which... Based on what the writer has said, might actually be closer to what the creator intended. But there, but there are all of these moments in between. Um, some of the more obvious ones that we'll talk about in a second, obviously, like the the whipping of the the gym teacher. But but there's other things, like for example, one of the very first lines that the sister uh, Jesse's sister utters. It's after he screams himself awake. And she said something along the lines of, like, why can't he just be like everyone else? Um, and interestingly enough, at no point do his parents say to her, you know, like, we wish the same thing, right? Like, there's this weird sort of acceptance, even of the dad, who's real crusty at times, that, like, he doesn't seem to be nearly as bothered um, by by Jesse and who Jesse is than, than one might expect. Yeah, he seems uh, far more frustrated with, like, the more stereotypical dad things, like, oh, clean up your room. Why don't you just, why don't you ever be clean? Grr. Yeah, it's not like, you know, um, why don't you man up? Never once is that said, right? So it's really interesting how, you're right, it ends on this really untransgressive um, note, but so much of the film doesn't really show characters being upset by him refusing, by Jesse's character refusing to fit into a neat box. Yeah, which is why I think ultimately at the end of the day, I am kind of okay ignoring the end. The end, it was made that way because that's what it took to make a film at the time. You, We were obviously not going to see Jesse end up with Grady, so they like had to tie it up in a nice little heteronormative bow and like tie that little bow on the top of the film. And so I'm okay kind of ignoring the ending and instead focusing on the content of the film, what happens throughout so much more of the run time. I mean, we've ignored many endings of films that, that for us ruined things. So, uh, you know, why should, should this film be different? Um, I think you're absolutely correct, especially when it comes to this relationship with Grady, because, uh, 
by and large, despite the admittedly rather large caveat of, of Jesse killing Grady, um, it's a rather functional, healthy relationship. I mean, so there's the, gen- there's the like, uh, you know, it's definitely enemies to lovers type thing. Mm-hmm. But at no point, you know, when, when Jesse needs a place to say, Grady, of course, inf- uh, famously has that line of, you know, like, you have a girl that wants to sleep with you and you're, and you're here with me to sleep over. Um, but, but that's, but then he's like, okay, fine. Okay, yeah. you know, like, and, and there's, they're, they're actually a pretty healthy relationship. You know, they're like so kind of supportive of one another again until the the death. Um, but like we see them actually, we see them spend more quality time together than I've seen in some films that are straight up gay films, um, or 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 rom coms or or whatever the case may be. Right, I've seen more films where I can say, I've not actually seen the couple interact enough. Um, than the nightmare too, right? With Grady and, and Jesse. That's true, and I mean, I, their relationship is incredibly interesting, as is so much of this film. Uh, and just because I think of how the film chooses to costume both of them, really placing lots of emphasis on the bulge present in both of them to really accentuate and make the audience aware that these are two men. You cannot. The audience, there is no ambiguity there. It, it, they're not going to be able to just like put that out of their minds and just focus on the story or whatever. They really have. They're really confronted with the fact these are two men showing affection to each other. And for 1985, that's, I mean, that's pretty transgressive. And I think you know, I mean, so so the truth is, is that you can read this film as 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 them having a a romantic ish relationship or at least a homoerotic relationship you could technically read it as as just a friendship right like the the script does allow that if you aren't sort of reading all the other cues right um and i think that's ultimately what i appreciate about this film is so um adam scales has an article on on nightmare 2 and and talks about the fact that uh the this is a quote from him. The film presents the postmodern disillusion of fixed roles for Jesse is simultaneously presented as victim monster and final boy. And so he talks about the fact that, you know, this film does what, what we have been taught, um, is not the case in horror. And that is horror constructs all these binaries, right? The, the male, uh, sadomasochism, the female vulnerability, the monster, the victim. Um, and, and in this film fractures all of that so that there's, it is simultaneously a, a homoerotic story and just two gentlemen that happen to be really good friends. Like it can be simultaneously read that way. And that is weirdly enough a strength as much as it is a weakness of the film. Yeah. I mean, like this is yet another relation back to the evil dead franchise in which I feel this real strength of a lot of this film is in present in the ambiguities of boundaries and borders and labels um like in the evil dead franchise nothing matters labels have no meaning any any attempt to label anything is clearly presented as futile i don't know if it is at nearly as present in nightmare on elm street 2 as obviously those films uh but i i think it's a real strength it, it nevertheless in present in this film and i think it's a strength that carries beyond the the queerness of the film to the film's interpretation of the dreamscape 
Thank you for making that transition. I was trying to figure I know. out how to make I that s- transition, but uh, <laughs> I could see you like having the wheels, and you were like, <laughs> and then you just kind of stopped, and I was like, okay, I can do it. I can make the transition uh, be- because, but it's true, right? Because one of the complaints about this film, as as part of a Freddy franchise, is that it it does really weird things with the dreamscape that no other. Uh, film in the franchise does but certainly not the first one and that is is that this film is really presents a very conflicted message about about how much bleed over there is like when are can you be in the dream world in the real world is the dream world the real world at what point right and like no no better scene i think communicates this than when jesse uh is dreaming and then like wanders into the um the gay bar and then you know then the scene where the gym teacher is having him run laps at night and then get the gym teacher gets you know whipped to death i actually had to rewind at that point because i thought maybe i'd missed something because i wasn't sure if i was in the dream world or not right because of course that idea of like of gym at night uh you know that's like a, a nightmare that people have about school um, so I was like, okay, well, this must be a dreamscape, um, because this this doesn't make any sense. Like, why is this teacher doing this? This is so creepy. And then I was like, oh, he's being picked up by the cops. This is real or real-ish, right? Um, and it, it's very confusing. Confusing, but in the same way that it would be confusing to Jesse in this time. I I, I don't know if I have as much of a problem. Uh, with this lack of boundaries and clear separation between uh, a dream, the dream and reality, because I think that is one of the most interesting parts about dreams, is that sometimes you can be in a dream that feels so close to reality that you're like, this is real, and then you wake up, and then you're, and then you have that like strange moment where you're like, wait a second, was that real? It felt so real. But this feels real now what's real, what's not. And that's that moment is, while usually very quick and fleeting, also terrifying. It's a terrifying moment of ambiguity and uncertainty. And I think that that is the element of dreams that this film is like, that's what's interesting to me. It's the ambiguity in the natures of dreams. Whereas the first film is a lot more cut and dry. It's like dream, dream world, real world. This one really focuses on the, on that, liminal space uh, between the dream world and the real world absolutely and and i think that's why ultimately i i came to appreciate it in a way that that again a lot of people can't because uh, they really like that clear sort of demarcation um where the characters you know it in in most of the nightmares it only takes the characters a few seconds or minutes into into their narrative uh story to to figure out that they're in a dream right because they're like huh i'm in a boiler i bet this is a dream right whereas you're absolutely correct that that so much of this film i don't think jesse and therefore we we don't know right where we are and and you're absolutely correct that not only do dreams bleed over when we wake up but i mean i've had i've had moments where i started to recall a memory and then i realized it was a dream or one of my favorite restaurants of all time is one that doesn't actually exist except for in my dreams, but it's such a good restaurant. It's the best food ever. And I go there. It's so good. And I go there a lot, right? Because I, I have, 
really intense dreams and I have recurring places in them, right? And so, like, there have been times that I'll begin a dream with, like, ooh, let's go to such and such place. And then I go there. And that so, like, there's so much bleed over and carry through um, that that you're right. It's a really fascinating way to to depict the horror of of not knowing literally as well as figuratively what's real. Yeah. And it just really reiter it goes back to that's that's all of these same things. The the discussion of the nightmare escape versus the real world and the gay versus not gay element of the film or to gay or not to gay um question within the film. I, they're they're the same question, I think. It's just whether or not this this film is presenting no boundaries really and just presenting you that liminal space and it drops you into that and it's like we're not going to give you all the answers and that might be uncomfortable but that's kind of the element i think of dreams and slash nightmares that this film finds interesting and and i'm i'm willing to go along with it for the ride i think and i i think i would even go so far as to argue that that is the queerest thing about this film that I don't know if this film would have had the the queer following it it does if it didn't have these very explicit things. Although, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz is also a, a beloved film of the gay community, and that one has even less, um, you know, obvious elements to it than Nightmare Two does. But I think truly, it's this film's celebration of the liminal and an acknowledgement that like is is who we are what is the line between authentic and performance and the answer is there is no line because everything is authentically a performance and it is a performance that is authentic right and you're like what um and i think that's what this film is giving us yeah in a way that is is so amazing uh to do and i think the the parts of the film that don't work are the parts of the film that try to be more straightforward. Like the third act, I just think it doesn't really work in this film when it's definitively in the real world. The transition has happened. The boundaries have been crossed. You've entered that and it's all in the real world. I think it's a, that last scene, particularly that at the pool. And although it, some it, of the pool works for me only because it's so, so ridiculous. I mean, that I, it is, but... it's amusing to see, uh, Freddy Krueger run around at this pool party, but it's amusing for like 10 seconds. And then I was like, this is not nearly as interesting as anything else that was happening. And it, I think it's just because it's a lot more straightforward than everything else that we've gotten in the film. And so those are the elements that don't kind of work for me. It's those more formulaic, straightforward, trying to give you the answers moments. Yeah, I think it's once the film transitions and tries to like reframe Lisa as the final girl right who has to save her beloved who like all of a sudden becomes action hero she's like I know exactly where he's gonna be like you know I think it's 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 for me it was really from the moment that she goes to the um warehouse onward right that I found and I realize that's a little short to be a full act but that's where I began to have problems with the film this is the that's the place in which it proceeds to undermine a lot of the really interesting stuff that it was doing previously
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode on A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. We will be continuing our exploration of the franchise, but we're going to alternate as we do between the franchise and another text. And so our next episode will be on 2020's Freaky. Excellent. And as you tried to fit in many times, we will get freaky with freaky, which is not quite a pun, just repeating the word twice, but still there. In the meantime, though, we are continuing our Spooky Scraps series, which is just sort of all the stuff that didn't make it into the episode. And so for Nightmare 2, our Spooky Scrap is going to be on... Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a documentary that follows Mark Patton's experience working on Nightmare 2. So check that out on our YouTube page. Uh, Be sure to follow all of our social medias, which are linked in the description. Share us with your friends, and have a spooktacular day.